the more and more we saw, the more and more we came to realize this is a sham. This is this is this is not legitimate. This really this has nothing to do with public health. This has everything to do with social control. Now, because there are glaring hypocrisies here that are not going addressed. Welcome back to the Feds. Insiders bringing accountability, integrity, and reform to a broken bureaucracy. I am Stephanie Weidel. If accountability for the overt illegal activity within our government is what you seek, talk with people. If you desire men and women of integrity to become the standard, ask people to join you when you stand up. And if you want reform, well, join us, because that's what Feds for Freedom seeks, all from the inside out. And of course, like, comment, subscribe to, and share our podcasts. Welcome to the Feds, insiders bringing accountability, integrity, and reform to a broken bureaucracy. At Feds for Freedom, we value constructive dissent and healthy debate. The views and opinions shared in today's episode are those of the speaker alone and do not express the views or opinions of the U.S. government or any other employer. Today, we are joined by Cameron Hamilton, former Navy SEAL and Department of Homeland Security's Director of Emergency Health Services Division. He is currently running for Congress in Virginia's 7th District. In our conversation, we learn what he saw during the COVID years being a director in authority at DHS, what prompted him to run for Congress, what Congress can do to make sure medical tyranny doesn't happen again, and how he'd encourage each American to combat corruption to refuse to be self-censored. Welcome, Cameron. Thanks so much for coming on with us today. Hey, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about you and your background. So my name is Cameron Hamilton. I grew up originally in Northern California, joined the military at a young age, uh, fresh out of high school, wanted to do something dangerous and exciting, but also very compelling. And so I joined the SEAL teams. I was an operator in the SEAL teams and a medic. So I spent about 10 years serving in the armed forces in the Navy. And then after that time, I transitioned to the State Department, worked there within the Directorate of Operational Medicine for about five years. And I uh, was working specifically under a program called Project Guardian, where we would principally defend and protect U.S. dignitaries, VIPs, high-ranking officials on behalf of the U.S. government overseas. We would embed within diplomatic security elements to keep American dignitaries, ambassadors, you name it, safe in places like Somalia, Yemen, Libya, you name it, um, locations of that nature. After my time there at State, I, I transitioned to the Department of Homeland Security, where I worked for three years as a, direct, as a division director within the Emergency Medical Services Division, maintaining oversight and medical standards of about 4,000 EMTs. Uh, that's my professional career as I've gone on through, through my time. I'm, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a Christian. Uh, those are elements that will always transcend politics. And now I am currently a candidate for U.S. Congress in the Virginia 7th Congressional District, which encompasses roughly 10 counties, Greene County, Madison County, Culpeper, Orange, Spotsylvania, Fredericksburg, Caroline, King George, Stafford, and then the eastern half of Prince William, as well as a sliver of Evermore County as well. And we'll be getting more into that. I, this is a great point to bring up right now that we are a 501c3 nonprofit organization and we do not endorse any political candidates. 
we are going to extend the opportunity to all candidates in the Virginia's 7th District to come onto this platform and talk with us. And um, we are speaking with Cameron Hamilton because he has been with and helped Feds for Freedom from its beginning. And he has spoken out so strongly against the COVID vaccine mandates. So let's go into um, you. So you were the director of emergency medical services, the emergency medical services division at Homeland Security. What were your duties? So principally at DHS headquarters, it's the it's the nexus that combines the different operational components. You have CBP, ICE, TSA, FEMA, many of the lettered agencies that encompass the Department of Homeland Security. I worked specifically within the Office of Health Security, which was under the Chief Medical Officer of DHS, which is a presidential appointed position. Uh, there, I managed the medical oversight of the EMS division, which encompasses different first responders and EMTs all sort of scattered throughout the, the DHS environment and family under a one DHS system and framework. You have EMTs in the Coast Guard, in ICE, in, in TSA, in CBP, specifically within Border Patrol, Air Marine Operations, or Office of Field Operations. So I served at the leisure of the Chief Medical Officer maintaining oversight of those EMTs, ensuring that they had the appropriate certifications and standards. And so how did you get to that position? Were you involved uh, with much um, medical uh, training ahead of time? That's a great question. I actually served uh, originally as a hospital corpsman in the Navy, and then I transitioned to become a SEAL once I graduated BUDS, BUDS Class 261. Uh, and so after I became a SEAL operator within the SEAL teams and each SEAL platoon, there's specialty qualifications you have explosive experts. You have uh, also snipers. You have individuals that focus on radio communications and systems. You have medical providers. I was a medic in the SEAL teams. In 2006, the Navy transitioned all of its rating forces over. So individuals who were previously hospital corpsmen and SEAL qualified then became SEAL as their primary designation and then medic as their secondary designation. So I was a SEAL medic for roughly 10 years in the Navy. So all of the jobs that I've had within my professional career working in and around the federal government were all involving something of a merger between tactical operations planning, contingency support, crisis response, as well as medical provision and medical oversight. Um, so that's a unique characteristic of what I did at the Department of State. And I was recruited to come to DHS by a gentleman who was the chief medical officer at the time, Dwayne Kniba. Dwayne worked on the National Security Council for the Trump administration as the chief medical officer there. And he he drew me over to the Department of State to DHS to manage the EMS system. Wow, well, what an exciting time to be at DHS and to be in your position. So what did you start seeing? So the last few weeks I was working at the State Department, I actually helped coordinate at the Harry S. Truman Building some of the first flights coming out of Wuhan, China. Originally it was stood up as what was called the Wuhan Task Force. We were not certain what the circumstances surrounding the pandemic was. It was very early. Again, this was in early February, and we even started doing it in January as well. I'd just come off a trip where I was stationed overseas in a crisis response staging position. So for about three or four weeks, we stood up an operations center. We started planning. When I came to DHS, we had already brought the first few flights back from Wuhan, China. We were starting to bring more American citizens 
and also legal permanent residents of the United States back to the United States. And at DHS, I onboarded, and then almost three weeks later, we went into lockdown mode. Uh, most federal spaces were on maximum telework, so we were forced to go into telework. I fortunately had enough time to onboard properly, check in with all my equipment, and then the, the workspace was kind of vacated early on. For our listeners, what does onboarding mean? Onboarding is when I actually uh, transitioned into the Department of Homeland Security. I was previously employed by the Department of State, and an onboarding is sort of a, a program you go through for a few days to a week or two where they bring you into their administrative system. They ensure that you have all your appropriate credentials. They give you your email access, and they turn on your access to the DHS internet so that you can communicate, you can receive emails, and you can be a part of the DHS environment. You can take your initial security training, and you can be a full-fledged employee using all the subsequent information technology systems required by your employment. All right, so you are in lockdown mode. What happens next? The first thing that we were looking at doing was how do we implement measures to provide support to our EMS and first responders on the line? Many of the offices shut down, but I will say Border Patrol and heavily within CBP, they weren't. They were still out in the hinterlands of the southern border, still managing the, the influx of migrants and still very much operationally focused. Something as simple as supplying them with the appropriate level of masks and replacement gloves, ensuring they had adequate hand sanitizer, giving them guidance on how much distance to separate themselves, what signs and symptoms to look for in groups of migrants that would come across the southern border. The EMS system of DHS is really focused on, in the event that there's an encounter within the immigration demographics that we find on the southern border, ensuring that our providers and our first responders are appropriately trained so that they can provide emergency life-saving care in an urgent capacity. We're not a full-fledged EMS agency in the sense that we would actually evacuate people. It does happen from time to time, but it's very rare. It's an exception. Traditionally, it's to be a stopgap because along certain parts of the southern border, it can be many hours from evacuation or traditional EMS, ambulances, things like that. So we equip and train our EMTs, our first responder officers, most of them are law enforcement officers, as emergency medical technicians, so that in the event they see an emergency, they can respond quickly for the purpose of granting maximum survivability possible to the migrants that they encounter. So it really is, it's a collateral duty. There's no extra pay or benefit. And we have so many amazing men and women in DHS that volunteer to do it. It's completely voluntary. We have roughly 4,000 of them at DHS that have all answered the call and they've agreed they carry extra equipment, they work longer hours. Our efforts were making sure that the encounters they had on the southern border were appropriate so as not to put them in physical jeopardy because at the time, the lethality of the virus was not fully known. Um, so we, we obviously, they have to apprehend people, they have to engage in their law enforcement duties, but we weren't sure at what degree are we putting them actually in risk. Um, so developing mitigation measures, developing quarantine measures, what to do if you had an agent who was exposed to a large group, three or four people of the group were sick with an influenza-like illness. Now a week later, that agent has become sick, developing protocols and characteristics so that we could ensure these EMTs could return to work safely, they were properly checked on, things of that nature. We also work quite a bit with, the, with TSA because again, air travel 
was shut down for the most part, but it was continuing in certain areas. So giving them the appropriate means with masking, with gloves, with sanitation, with proper distancing, um, so that they could do their job and not potentially bring home an illness to their family. So when did you start seeing oddities within those policies? I will say it was very, when we saw Operation Warp Speed, I think a lot of people had a lot of really positive feelings and emotions toward the administration because they thought they're doing something. And in the past, vaccination for influenza-like illnesses and for others like the respiratory syncytial virus and, and other things had been fairly widely adopted. And again, it was people choosing to obtain a, a procedure for the hopes that it would boost their immunity. So when we saw the government respond with these increased efforts that they were going to cut red tape and eliminate bureaucracy, there was a lot of positivity within the workforce. This is good. They'll give us options. We'll see what remedies we come up with. There were a lot of different treatments that were all over the map. So there was a it wasn't really certain what would help, what wouldn't. There were some that were using a lot of doxycycline and other things as a as a mitigation effort against secondary or tertiary infections that would follow a viral infection. When the vaccine became in production and when we started to see healthcare industries leveraging it as though it was a workplace requirement, that's when a lot of scrutiny became applied with members of the workforce. And there were grumblings and rumors that potentially a vaccine would be required as a condition of employment for federal employees. Over time, legal, actually at the time under the Trump administration, it issued several positions and put out pretty widely within the department, not a single employee will be required against their will to obtain any procedure for any circumstances at any degree of time. Quarantine measures were not, were not uh, however, voluntary. That was a mandatory requirement. And you could formally discipline people if you did not adhere to specific quarantine measures. And that was uniformly applied. So there was no discriminatory effort there. It was simply, if you've been exposed or you've come down with symptomatic exposure, these are the requirements you have to adhere to before you can return to work safely because we don't want you to get other people sick. Again, early on in the pandemic, that seemed to make sense. Um, and I don't terribly disagree with certain quarantine measures but not of the economy the way that we did on a mass scale. When the transition of the administrations had occurred, that's when we started to see the rhetoric ratchet up about the actual governmental agencies, not only making it aware that individuals could obtain the vaccine, but in fact, actually urging employees to obtain the vaccine. It was no longer, hey, if you'd like to obtain this, it's free of no charge. Here's where you can find it. It's the rhetoric amplified with, you know, you really should do it. In fact, if you don't do it, you're being irresponsible. And so that language was subtle and it started to kind of inculcate the federal workspace in a much more palpable way, eventually resulting in Executive Order 14043 and 14042, mandating the vaccine for both contractors and federal employee direct hires, respectively. Um, so uh, really extremely problematic. And, and that occurred in September of 2021. So well after the transition of the administration. And why was that a problem for you? Look, I'm a firm constitutional believer in limited government. Um, I've believed 
very clearly in the sovereignty and the autonomy of the individual. That's one of the beauties of Western enlightened thought and really classical Greek philosophy, um, what you call that classical liberal uh, philosophy. The freedom and autonomy of the individual versus tyranny of the state. The needs of the one uh, are superior to their own needs as opposed to being overridden by the needs of the many. And you can play that back and forth, but what I found compelling with vaccination, we're talking about a medical procedure. And now individuals were hired under a certain term of condition of employment. And then their conditions of employment were, was changed contractually in a way that wasn't mutually agreed upon by both parties. The United States has taken significant efforts in prosecuting individuals for violating their contracts in a variety of different ways, in real estate and business, you name it. This was a clear violation of a workplace contract, a term of condition employment agreement between the federal government and the employee that you sign when you become federally hired. Beyond that, the fact that now the federal government was encouraging and now requiring the vaccination was an even greater infringement on the civil liberties. The founders of this country talked about specific responsibilities and specific limitations of power. For example, the right to bear arms, because that had been directly infringed upon by the British. They never discussed medical freedom because that was never a requirement. That was never a compelling argument of the day because it was inherently defined with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The And, and Dr. Benjamin Rush even talked about quite a bit medical tyranny during his day and age. Um, so the founders of our country, when, when writing the Constitution, which ultimately was James Madison um, and many others, the argument over medical freedom was never something that was even up for negotiation. It was commonly understood. This was a radical departure from that. And there are specific cases that have kind of created a precedent for it. Um, essentially, I became an objector as soon as the mandate was implemented. It's one thing to make a procedure accessible. It's another to say that, in fact, the department may pay for it so that it doesn't come out of your pocket. But it's a different effort entirely when you start compelling it and requiring it against people's wishes. And that, in my opinion, was just too far. So how did you act and how did they respond? So this was September. In October, I became aware of the group Feds for Medical Freedom. They started very shortly afterwards. And so over time, I became immersed into this group through word of mouth. It started as a very grassroots effort, um, kind of a, a community of employees that said, hey, there's this group that's starting up. They're going to advocate for people's rights. Uh, it was a pretty compelling and catchy name, Feds for Medical Freedom. Uh, and so I, I joined. I learned more about the group. I met Marcus. I met many of the other really compelling leaders, James and Mel and you name it. There's just some incredible people there. And there's many more that I'm not mentioning, of course, but the more and more we connected, the more and more we became apparent and, and, and the more it became clear that you're right, this is an infringement on our rights. This is absolutely un unmerited and unconstitutional. So we started to support one another. And the group itself, which I, I wasn't the earliest member, I was early on, but not definitely not a, the earliest members. There were many that joined before me. Uh, the group really created a network of individuals that believed we should support one another. We should be a resource of information and share. And then ultimately, we should advocate for policies within our government and push back against medical tyranny. Um, and so over time, as the group grew, 
one of the largest participants in the group itself was DHS. And we siloed individuals based upon federal agency. And that was because of an administrative requirement to really look at the demographics of who are the members of this group now. They're so large. We got up to eight, 9,000 people. Okay, how do we put people in buckets so that we can communicate? HHS is doing one thing, DHS is doing another, DOS is doing another yet still. And so DHS was a very large contingent of that group. And that's when the leadership team at Feds for Medical Freedom reached out to me and had asked, Cameron, would you be willing to represent and be a, a central point of contact for the the roughly two to 3,000 employees of DHS that have joined this group? And so it was an honor and a privilege. And I, I gladly stepped into that role. It was also a bit ironic because I worked for the DHS chief medical officer. Um, and I was also one of the highest ranking DHS employees within the group uh, as a division director. So it seemed wholly appropriate for me to assume that role uh, to serve and to advocate for the things that the, the group there required. What were you seeing in your own workplace? Like, did you have to submit the exemptions and what was the so response? So I did submit an exemption early on. Um, I will say I submitted a medical exemption and I won't go into all my own medical background, but I have had adverse reactions in the past that have been documented. Um, so I submitted a medical exemption early on under the auspice that I believed, frankly, it wasn't appropriate for me to even submit an exemption because I shouldn't have to. Um, but nonetheless, I did. And I made my position very clear. I'm not obtaining this because I have a documented history of adverse reactions. And that's my own personal circumstances. But nonetheless, I was not actively discriminated against. So I was ironically working at DHS headquarters, one of the very fortunate people. Um, it wasn't until much later that we found out the quarantine measurements and the isolation requirements were different for those who were vaccinated versus unvaccinated. And that's when the equal opportunity discrimination claims started to rise at a dramatic level because you had individuals who had not obtained a procedure who were deemed to be within a medical disability or deemed to be somehow medically at risk in a way that scientifically wasn't validated. So I personally did not undergo a significant degree of pressure or consternation. My exemption was accepted very early on. Of course, my leadership was the individuals that you were viewing all the medical exemption requests for the entire department. Um, and so I was unique. But the more I talked to people within Feds for Medical Freedom, the more I realized there were people within CBP, people within specifically Border Patrol and AMO and OFO that were being grotesquely discriminated against in an egregious way, and which I found so alarming because it was a complete 180 from my circumstance. Um, and so that's where I decided to advocate for them. And we ultimately, over time, began to realize there are two very different standards here of how people are being treated, those who are vaccinated and those who are not. In fact, I heard on several headquarters calls, federal government employees legitimately saying that if you're vaccinated, you should look normal. If you're unvaccinated, I kid you not, you should wear an armband around your arm that identifies your status that is mandatory to be worn at all times. Whoa. I kid you not, I heard this more than once on conference calls with encountering weapons of mass destruction and within other headquarters elements. 
Did no, you speak thought... to anyone around you about this? Did you say, hey, this sounds a little bit like World War II here? I did. I did. Fortunately, I was very well supported. Um, I won't mention my immediate chain of command that I reported to. I will say they were excellent. Um, the individuals who I reported to directly, which ultimately was the chief medical officer, treated me with absolute professionalism. Um, and, and I had a very unique circumstance. Um, but there were many others who did not have that, that benefit. And I felt it was vitally important to ensure that we were advocating for them. Because ultimately, as a headquarters officer working within headquarters, you know, within, within OHS, specifically the Office of Health Security, um, it was really incumbent upon me to ensure that we need to lead from the top down, not just the bottom up. Uh, so I, I chose to still continue to represent the agents and the individuals at DHS that were being grossly discriminated against. You would think if you really were a health hazard, that everyone would be treated the same in every single right. agency. That right. never happened. They picked and chose who they wanted to to discriminate against. It was just incredible. Absolutely. Based on the supervisors. You had some that were very, you said it very well. You have some that were very aggressive with implementing mitigation measures and even disciplinary action. And you had others that frankly were lackadaisical. Uh, it was completely haphazard because it was entirely subject to the individual, which shows that there, in my opinion, was not a really firm, coherent message across the department, which made the mandate and which made enforcement measures even more hypocritical. Wow. So did your family support you through all of this and how have they been impacted? They did. So I, I met with my wife and we prayed and we talked about it with our family. And the more and more we saw what was going on, the more and more we came to realize that much of the mandate infrastructure that was bringing it about really was not about the improvement or quality of people's lives. It was about control. Yes. It was about tyranny, even if it was a subtle or soft tyranny of, well, it's for your own good. It's for your own health. It's for the health of others. And the more and more we saw, the more and more we came to realize this is a sham. This is, this is, this is not legitimate. This really, this has nothing to do with public health. This has everything to do with social control. Now, because there are glaring hypocrisies here that are not going addressed. So my wife and I, we talked about it and ultimately the will to be vaccinated versus none. I knew many people who obtained the vaccine. They didn't want to, but they simply felt, well, I don't want to lose my job. I'm, you know, got a kid in college or I've got young children or I've got, you know, a huge mortgage. I can't pay for my home. If I lose my job, I don't know what kind of a job I'll get now. We saw other workers at hospitals and places who were getting fired because they weren't adhering to their, um, you know, medical uh, installation requirements. You know, hospitals up in New Jersey and New York and Washington, D.C. and many others in California, getting even Texas that were getting terminated for not complying with their mandates. But we agreed this is a fight worth having. What would the founders have done? Would they have, you know, bent the knee and accepted tyranny and just been subservient sheep? Or would they have stood boldly and said, no, we believe there's a greater thing here than simply um, adhering to an unconstitutional and an unmerited mandate. We believe that we should stand for liberty and virtue and freedom. And so that's what we chose to do. And I was just remarkable that I could be, you know, with the group Feds for Medical Freedom, which then became Feds for Freedom. Um, and they were just a tremendous resource for those of us who believed that the government had gone way too far. Yes, they have. 
At what point did you decide to run for Congress? Very interesting question. Nick Freitas is my state delegate who is here in Virginia. He's a former Green Beret. So naturally, I'm a former SEAL. He's a former Green Beret. There's a healthy rivalry there. Um, of course, each of us thinks our program was better. But uh, although the Army did beat us again this year, which, which hurts my heart very bad, um, Army beat Navy again. But, but that being said, Nick and many others approached me. Nick ran for Congress in 2020 and he lost the congressional seat in the general election. Nick has been a darling of this region for quite a while. Um, and he's also a very good, very God-fearing man, very principled man. He and others approached me and asked me to consider whether I would seek public office. Uh, naturally, my first response was, why on earth would I do that? Um, not that I'm opposed to being involved in politics, because again, I'm, we have always considered ourselves very politically active, but I would have to resign from my job at DHS. And the more we thought about it and prayed about it, the more we came to realize, too, I was being given an opportunity and I was being supported by people who had worked in this realm, who were pledging to help me and assist me in whatever way they could. This was a once in a lifetime chance to really step into the ring with the right partners who are very capable and very knowledgeable in this area and very connected. And I wouldn't be able to look my children in the face seeing the great blessings and the great virtues and resources of this country squandered and to know that, well, I had a chance to do something. I had a chance to be involved legislatively at the federal level, but I was too comfortable and I wasn't willing to risk my job. At the end of the day, I can't look my children in the eyes and come to that conclusion. So after much time in prayer, my wife and I decided this is something that we believe God put on in my heart and that God put in our path and that we would wholly pursue. Um, so essentially it took some time, but when I told my wife I was going to resign from my job and lose my pension and run for Congress, that went about as well as you can imagine at first. Uh, there was a, a pretty big freak out moment. What, you know, give up your whole stability to, to represent the people of Virginia 7th? The more we thought and prayed about it, the more we realized you know, the founders of this country risked everything. They risked their personal lives, their wealth, their resources, the very lives of even their family on a dream that this could be a free and prosperous land governed by the commandments of God with liberty and freedom from tyranny. And my children deserve to have a legislator who believes in those things this day and age. So ultimately, it was a decision I made because I believe that my children deserve to have their representative advocate for those same principles. So that's what I'm seeking to do. I'm seeking to represent families and just freedom lovers all throughout the Virginia 7th. The 7th District of Virginia is a very interesting one right now. And I, so I want to take a little bit of time to talk about this. So Yevgeny or Eugene Vindman um, is a legal expert within the DOD, staff judge, advocate, who recommended that Mark Bashaw, and we've had Mark Bashaw on this podcast, that Mark Bashaw, an Army public health officer, be court-martialed due his, to his refusal of all EUA products. And not only Correct. that, he signed um, and processed um, Mark Bashaw's paperwork. Um, so by law, mandating EUA products 
is illegal. That is correct. So what's very interesting is that Yevgeny Vintman is now running in the 7th District. When I found that out, I was like, oh, my goodness, that's this Cameron Hamil Hamilton's district. He's one of our own. Like, wow. Wh wow. What are the odds that there are the two of you in there? Definitely unique. Uh, I would say that that's more of a God story right there. Yes. You couldn't ask for a more broad difference between me and, and Mr. Vindman. Ideologically and politically, there are clearly divides, but from just a philosophical perspective, one believes that the tools and powers of government should be weaponized, should be able to be weaponized against its constituents in an egregious way. The other believes that that is a step too far and we need to rein in the intrusion of government. So you you couldn't tee up a more perfect argument of what would you prefer, liberty or tyranny? Um, and so it's it's subtle, but there's a variety of issues that we face on. Um, his claim to fame, Yevgeny, was that his brother, Alexander, testified against Trump in the House hearings pertaining to the Ukrainian phone call. Um, and in fact, his brother, Yevgeny, also brought forth complaints about Trump's handling of the conflict in Ukraine long before the war in Russia kicked off, but of certain uh, corruption measures that they were trying to tamper off. What they really complained about is the fact that someone like President Trump dared to change the status quo in the argument, and they believed he was trying to pressure the government of Ukraine with political influence. So it was all over the news. They gained a lot of notoriety and publicity. Um, Yevgeny is now running as a candidate who claims he was targeted. He was pressured. His career was ruined, but that he did his civic duty to advocate for truth and justice. In reality, he was promoted. Um, he had a very prosperous career and he was never really targeted. He retired. And then now his brother is actually vying for contracts from the government of Ukraine paid for by taxpayer dollars with the subsidy and aid packages that the United States government is sending to the Ukrainian government. Um, so these two are directly profiting off the conflict, in, or at least attempting to directly profit off the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, and what's worse is that, again, Yevgeny prosecuted individuals who believe that the state and the federal government had ultimately violated their constitutional rights and authorities and bragged about it online, boasted about it on social media how proud he was to have prosecuted people who ultimately didn't adhere to the public health mandates. Now, just egregious, just the flagrant disregard for constitutionalism and for the rule of law is astonishing. It is so, astonishing. Uh, and they're so overt, like you said. I mean, just unbelievable. They keep going and they're, they're, they're bra like you said, bragging as if it's something to hold up and say, hey, I'm going to keep going because this is the this is the, the right thing to do. No, it's illegal. And we need to say it is illegal. So do you think we're still a two-party system or have we become a uniparty? The uniparty is a difficult term to contend with. I will say I, I don't really believe in the singular party. What I think we have right now in D.C. and within our government is I like to classify it as the land of many different fiefdoms. And there are areas in concentric circles that overlap where there's influence and congruency between organizations and then other areas where they're not. Um, so it would be easy to summarize it with a uniparty. 
Unfortunately, I think it's a lot more nuanced and complicated than that. But I think that there are quite a bit of coordinated efforts that go on between differing powers and differing influences in D.C. that certainly has the appearance of mass cooperation between different political systems. I will say, when it comes to a two-party system, the United States was never really intended to be a two-party government. It was intended to be a government for and by the people with as many parties as reasonably acceptable. Having said all that, over time, the differences between what became the Republican and what became the Democratic Party, again, two of the oldest political parties in the entire world, ironically, that are still functioning under their current form of government. Um, the United States government itself is actually much older than most governments in all of Europe, even though the history of the U.S. is much younger. Um, but under our current state of government, it's 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 actually very old when you think of it that way. Um, very few nations have not gone through serious constitutional reforms in a matter of a few weeks or in a matter of, uh, uh, you know, more than you know 200 years. What we're seeing now, the Republican Party advocated for the freedom of the individual. It was born out of a party that believed in abstention from slavery and for advocating ultimately that the individual has autonomy and worth. The Democratic Party believed in much more of a, um, a, a majority rule on a variety of different topics. They believed that the majority had a lot of autonomy and shouldn't be able to wield the powers of government even at the expense of the individual. So it kind of is sort of similar to the Federalist versus the state argument that you saw during the time of the founders. The long story short is, right now, we've seen issues flip-flop back and forth between parties, and the original ideological divides are nowhere near as consistent as what they were in the past. So it's difficult to contend with whether we have one party, whether we have two parties, or whether we have more in reality, we have a lot of different factions. Um, I still believe that the Republican Party advocates for greater autonomy of the individual. However, I can say with absolute certainty, there are clear indications when the Republican Party has coordinated in an egregious way with their Democratic counterparts at the expense of the American taxpayer and at the expense of the American people. So um, I'm not really sure what the future holds for us with the parties that we have. I do think that both parties need to undergo a radical reformation, um, which is one thing that I'm hoping to do within the Republican Party is get it back on the firm, limited government, constitutional conservative grounds, as opposed to more of the neoconservative movement, which believes in flexing the muscles of government, even if it's at the expense of the, of the American people. How do you explain so many Republicans in Washington now doing absolutely nothing when their constituents went to them and said, we're being kicked out because of illegal actions on the part of the government, would yep. you please help us? And there was no response. Or I've heard of one case of one Republican saying, just go get the shot. I mean, yep. really? So yep. how do you explain that? Part of it's because of the psychological nature of what was being going, what had been going on within the media. Um, we remember that all the different news outlets and stations, you know, this segment sponsored by Pfizer, sponsored by Moderna. You saw a lot of these advertisements that went out realizing that some of these pharmaceutical companies, which profited immensely from these vaccines, were co-oping and making donations and even booking airtime. 
and causing certain members of industry to profit. So I do give some grace for those that didn't see the issue or the constitutionality because we have to remind ourselves this was a psychological warfare campaign weaponized against the people. And it should not be surprising that we have people who fell for it. Um, in fact, that shouldn't be expected. It's validating to know, hey, I didn't fall for it. Good. That was one of the most aggressive campaigns that the modern world has ever seen. But still, we do need to give a little bit of grace to some who actually believed this is saving lives, who actually believed that by obtaining the shot, they were helping grandma or they were helping their neighbors down the road. So, so that's where I will say there needs to be a little bit of grace there. When it's unacceptable is that when the powers of government were punishing people for not doing it, that's where I become exceedingly frustrated that individuals didn't see the red flags all over it. And you're right, we had a lot of Republicans who, frankly, were Republican in name only, and they very much advocated for much more of a authoritarian form of government that had nothing to do with the origins of the Republican Party and were completely in violation of the Republican creed. And I've long said I support Republicans who adhere to the creed itself because the creed is clear on what the values should espouse. So I give a, a huge shout out today to Congressman Andy Biggs because today on the House floor, uh, and again today being Thursday the 11th, on the House floor, Andy Biggs read and entered the, the Declaration of Military Accountability document and letter into the official congressional record. So today it occurred where that was entered into the congressional record. It's not a publicly searchable document uh, where 231 individuals signed a, a joint letter indicating that in the event that the public or the government were not willing to hold aggressors within the Department of Defense accountable for their egregious oversteps, that we would. And that we would do so with peaceful means and not with force but that we would pursue propping up and elevating candidates and elevating and supporting political individuals and those in the legislative realm so as to ensure that there was full accountability and transparency for these oversteps. Um, so unfortunately, that came two years after these mandates were actually handed down, which in my opinion is two years too late. The original NDAA that was signed by, the, uh, by Congress in 2022 did for a period of time rescind the order, but only so far. It didn't actually declare that the order itself was unconstitutional. That's one of the unique things that the legislative branch can do in their actions is they can define the parameters of a bill and specific language. And they didn't really do that. In fact, they even merited that, well, this is a constitutional order, but we are requesting that it be rescinded. So now you've got all this restitution that you just denied service members who were prosecuted. Um, so I'm hoping the tides will change. I'm hoping that more advocates for freedom and equality in government will rise to the occasion and will finally start to advocate for these sound principles. So you signed this recent declaration of military accountability. We had Robert Greene Jr. on um, a couple of weeks ago talking about this, who he authored the document. Um, and uh, it, they it was a vow to hold military leaders accountable via court martial, via holding their retirements um, back from them. Um, how how will this be accomplished? Like, 
how will you accomplish this in Congress? So the Uniform Code of Military Justice does have very specific stipulations where you can still hold people accountable for the actions that they undertook while they were serving in uniform, even if they've subsequently retired. So the, the letter itself requested three things. Uh, number one, that the Department of Defense fully acknowledge the unconstitutionality of the order. Number two, that uh, individuals who were punished would be made whole and that full restitution would be granted uh, to include back pay, to include restitution with rank lost or with opportunities lost, um, you name it, for individuals who were punished. And then number three, to ensure that the specific aggressors who instituted these orders, as well as every subordinate officer who enforced them, is personally held accountable under the articles of the UCMJ, the Uniform Code of Military Justice. That's really, in summary, what the letter is requesting. How we do that as Congress is, as a legislator, I'm, again, applying for a job, if you will, for the voters of Virginia 7. Legislators have the unique opportunity of writing language specifically within bill. For example, when DHS used its 872 reorganization authorities, um, we saw to, to reform the department. And when we saw also the Affordable Care Act, there was specific language about portability of licensure. Um, Portability of licensure had to be defined by a healthcare provider. Well, our legislative branch defines 16 different definitions of what a healthcare provider constituted. Very specific. So that when you use a language or you have a sentence, I shall authorize individual X to do X, Y, and Z, and this is the capacity I want them to do it. The, su the supplementary documentation in that bill states specifically this word means this. And there's sentences, there's articles, there's paragraphs. That's the uniqueness of some of the length of many of these bills. That is a power solely vested in the legislature. The legislature has the authority to initiate certain programs and specifically call out language to be initiated by governmental programs that are funded by the taxpayer. So uniquely, our legislative branch, which is Congress and the Senate, do have the authority to write in the National Defense Authorization Act or in other acts that are passed, the parameters in which an action is constitutional or unconstitutional and what the limitations of that are. So that's a unique thing that Congress could have done by declaring this is an unconstitutional order. Any and all programs perpetuating X, Y, and Z action will hereby be cease and desist. There will be no supplementary funding that is authorized for use. Congress sets very clear parameters and guardrails on the dollars spent by these federal departments and how they're used. That's a unique thing that Congress can do as well. They can either withhold funding and say, we will not grant you funding of these programs here, these 10, maybe there's 25 different programs that they're going to fund, 10 of them, you will not receive a single penny until this report is finished or until this uh, analysis is completed because we want to determine, is this really wise for the American taxpayer? We want to see your information first before we fully fund it. $10 million here, $5 million there, you name it. The vaccine mandate was a perfect case point where Congress could have instituted specific guardrails to make it undeniably clear that the De Department of Defense had no authorization to initiate or to enforce a mandate. And in fact, that if it had been pursued, Full restitution would be granted to those who were targeted. They failed to do it. And so that's what I'm hoping to change. 
one of the many characteristics of, of legislature is absolute advocacy for the constituents you represent. And the seventh as a huge cohort of service members, both active and retired, former and current federal government employees, you name it. Many were impacted by these mandates, both the DOD mandate as well as 14043 and 14042 pertaining towards contractors and federal government employees. So if the legislature is unwilling to write specifically language that, that puts guardrails on these types of actions, then we need a new legislature. We need new elected officials with higher moral character and who are willing to put the constituents they represent before their own interests. Yes, we absolutely do. Our time is running a little short, but I do have a question for you. If there is one thing that the American citizen can do to combat the corruption that we have talked about and that we see um, daily, um, if there's one thing that, that the average American citizen can do, what would it be? I'm reminded of a quote from the book, Live Not By Lies. When you hear the, the Benda family story of what they endured in Romania under the persecution of communist government, really quite egregious and awful. They speak specifically about a lot of self-censorship and how they believed that in public spaces and different locations, they didn't have the freedom to speak their minds clearly. The First Amendment is a wholly unique privilege and, and really fundamental right in this country that is not given because of the Constitution. Rather, the Constitution declares that it shall be upheld and that it's ultimately God-given. No other nation across this, this, this world has a right such like ours that's explicitly defined. So if there's any one thing I would ask people do, refuse to be self-censored. It doesn't mean be untactful. It doesn't mean be, be, you know, I'm not telling you to be a wimp. I'm also not telling you to be a jerk. Uh, be cordial. Be Use proper discipline and reticence when appropriate. Be considerate of others. But we must refuse to self-censor. We must refuse to cower of telling the truth. Because if we can't tell the truth here, where can we go? Show me what nation across the world where there's an actual opportunity to speak your mind freely without prosecution from government. And because there isn't one, it doesn't, it does not exist. So the one thing is live not by lies, refuse to lie, refuse to be deceitful, speak the truth boldly and be proud. We're not proud so much, but be firm in your convictions. That's excellent, Cameron. Thank you. And thank you for using your uh, position and your integrity to advocate for freedom and advocate for the ones who were being discriminated against this entire time. Um, you are um, a man of integrity and boldness. You are seeking reform and accountability, and we thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for tuning in. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe, and of course, share this episode. Visit our website at fedsforfreedom.org. I'll see you next time.